Praise the Lord. Well, we want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 this uh, evening. We're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. We've uh, started a series a couple of weeks ago and, uh, that we've entitled Stories in Genesis. We're going through certain ones. We're certainly not going to cover the whole book of Genesis, but we are taking certain events that are identified throughout the book of Genesis and, and talk about them and and uh, and, and really uh, my intent, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out, but my intent is to talk about some things that, that we don't normally cover. We usually talk about Abraham and his story, we talk about Joseph and and, uh, and so forth, but uh, my intent for this uh, series is to kind of cover some of the things that we don't normally speak about or spend much time on. And uh, everybody knows the story of uh, the Tower of Babel, where God came down and confused the languages of the people and scattered them and so forth. But really, the, uh, the story of the Tower of Babel is the story of God's dealing with Nimrod, who we'll find out about in Genesis chapter 10. And it goes even further than that. And I'll explain it as we go and, and uh, make some closing comments about it. Notice in chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, the first seven verses are the sons of, uh, of Noah, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And it talks about the different uh, ones that were born to them. But then there's a um, parentheses in the chapter from, chapter from verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. That, uh, that referenced Nimrod, and it's, uh, uh, in my opinion, crucially important to understand that, to understand the next uh, uh, story, the story of the Tower of Babel. So in verse 8 it says, And Cush beget Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now the name, Jewish names always mean something, and they don't always translate real well into the English language. Now if you look at uh, Strong's Concordance for the name Nimrod, You'll find out that it means the son of Cush. Well, it just tells you that Cush begat Nimrod. So how in the world does that help? The name Nimrod has several different meanings, deeper meanings that go back to the root. Uh, one meaning is the rebel. Another uh, meaning that goes back a little deeper than that is the name means we will revolt. But the, 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 the bottom line the most you can break down the name Nimrod to mean, it means get down, and the implication is so I can be exalted. In other words, the story of Nimrod is the story of tyranny. The story of the Tower of Babel is God's dealing with tyranny. So it says, Cush beget Nimrod, and Nimrod was a mighty warrior, or a mighty one. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Notice it says he began to be a mighty one. Now in... Um, uh, I think it's a, the complete Jewish Bible. There are several different translations that, uh, that say that. Uh, well, wait a minute. Missed my mark. The complete Jewish Bible says, Cush fathered Nimrod, who was the first powerful ruler on the earth. And there are many other translations that will say something to that effect. Where it talks about a mighty one, it talks about him being a mighty warrior. It refers to him in uh, one translation as being a giant. He's talking about a powerful ruler. In other words, this is a story of how Nimrod began to rule over the people. And it has uh, very specific consequences for them, but it has a lot of uh, present-day applications for us. So it says, um, um, 
Nimrod began to be a powerful ruler in the earth. Here's the parentheses. Here's the, the side information about him. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Again, powerful ruler. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, this was the saying of the day, even as Nimrod, the powerful ruler before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, notice it mentions the beginning again. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land, I'm reading from the King James, it says, Out of that land went forth Asher and built builded Nineveh in the city Rehoboth and Caleb. Now, who's Asher? And why, where did he come from? The margin of my Bible is the little number six beside the name Asher. Or actually, it's by the, by the word went. Out of that land went forth Asher. And it says this. And other translations say this as well. This is not just the, the marginal reference to my Bible. But it says this in many other translations as well. Here's another way to read this verse of Scripture. Or he, meaning Nimrod, went forth into Assyria and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kala. Verse 12 goes on. And Razan between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. In other words, it's saying uh, Nimrod is building a name for himself. Nimrod is becoming one of, if not the first of the attempted world rulers. He's attempting to create a world rule. Now, there's about 130 years, uh, we estimate about 130 years through the genealogy between the time of the flood and the time of the Tower of Babel. So in that 130 years, it talks about 70 different tribes from the three sons of Noah that are in the earth. And it says each one of them has their own tongue. Let me uh, bring this to your attention. Notice in chapter 10, in verse 5, it says, By these, talking about the divisions of the, of the land, And by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families and their nations. Notice also in verse uh, 20. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues. In their countries and in their nations. The third one is uh, the sons of Shem in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. Now, how can get, we know the end of the story. We know that God confounds the language His problem is they're all speaking the same language. Why does the Bible say that there are 70 different languages or 70 different tongues, literally, as divided by the the three sons of Noah? Well, it's talking about the difference in a major language and dialects. See, I grew up in Alabama, and in Alabama, everything was a Coke. Nobody said soda pop. Nobody said soft drink. Everything was a Coke. Didn't matter what brand it was. I guess they had Pepsi back then. I know they had RC Cola. But everything was a Coke. I went to Oklahoma and they started talking about pop. I couldn't figure out what in the world. It took me two years to figure out what people were talking about. Didn't want to be stupid and ask questions. But it was pop. Come out here and everything's a soda. Well, we're all saying the same thing. We're all talking about the same thing. But it's according to the dialect or the use of the language... It's all English. Some people might dispute that in the South. But nevertheless, it's all one language but different dialects. Apparently, each of these 70 different tribes, offspring of the sons of Noah, had their own dialects. 
And that's where we get the, uh, the notion for a tongue being a language. That's how it translates into the English language. That's where we got the notion of it. So here it says Nimrod is trying to unify these people from these 70 different tribes, any and all of these 70 different tribes. And he's trying to do that by the building of cities. Notice it mentions the cities that he built. He built Nineveh and he built some other places that I don't know if I pronounced correctly or not. But it says that this is how he began to establish his powerful rule. He began to build cities. Now skip with me over to chapter 11. It mentions, I should make mention of this three times before we get out of these scriptures. Three times it makes mention of Nimrod being a powerful ruler. The Bible doesn't say something over and over again unless it's trying to emphasize a point. You need to understand that the issue with Nimrod is that he was a powerful ruler. Now remember what his name means. His name means get down. It means you as an individual subjugate yourself to him so that he can gain power and authority. That's what his name means. Now, folks, we don't know for sure, and there's, uh, there's disagreement between the Jews. I like the Hebrew. Uh, well, I, I, let, me, let me clarify this. There's a lot about the, the teaching of Judaism and the Old Testament teaching of Torah that I really like when it comes to the first five books of the Bible. Now, everything you get from Judaism, I can't swallow. For example, one of the reasons that that one portion of ancient Judaism, the ancient wisdom of Judaism, claims that Nimrod got his power is that he inherited the clothing, the skins that God made for Adam. And the, the, the story is, I'm not going to look at anybody so I can say it with a straight face. The story is that all the animals of the earth obeyed Nimrod and it was the source of his great power and his ability to gather support and loyalty from the people because he had inherited the skin from Adam. I've got some problems with that. Typically, Judaism will squeeze a story out into where there's no miraculous left to it. But on the other hand, they'll make the miraculous out of something that doesn't even make sense. So with that in mind, there are some things I like about Judaism as far as the Old Testament stories are concerned. But you have to take it with a grain of salt. Now here where it says three times that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, translated powerful ruler. The reason that they translated as hunter in many places, or several of them, is because of this. We think in our Western mentality, looking back to the story of the Tower of Babel, that here are these uneducated, ignorant, backwoods people, nomads living in deserts and so forth, that have no skill whatsoever, and they're out hunting animals. Well, folks, after the flood, everybody's hunting animals. Why would you say that about Nimrod? Anybody that's eating is hunting animals. Why is it it's said of Nimrod on several places? Where does it, why does it translate, and it does translate it accurately, that he was a hunter? It's not saying that Nimrod was hunting animals. It's talking about being a hunter of men. Not to kill them, but to seduce them into becoming 
subservient to him, to following his plan and his vision for these cities and this great world kingdom that he's trying to set up. Now, how's he going to do that? Well, that's what chapter 11 is all about. Chapter 11, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. One speech is a bad translation. At least it's not a, it's not a sure translation. One does not mean one unit. It means few. The word that's translated speech can mean one of three things. It can mean word, matter, or thing. Many translations in some of the ancient, uh, some of the oldest uh, Hebrew texts translate this into the English. The whole earth was of one language and a few things. Now that's going to be important and it may hold some water as we go. You decide for yourself. But it wouldn't make sense to say one language and one speech if language and speech are both the same thing. Why would the Bible be telling us that twice? There's no meaning behind it. And so it's got to be something more than the, than the English is showing us. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. I'm going to say a few things. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. In other words, they didn't finish it. They left it halfway done or or partially done, incomplete anyway. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord there did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now... The name Babel means something. Look it up in the Hebrew concordance and you'll find out that it means confusion. But the root, two root words that make up the name Babel literally mean the gate of God. Most Hebrew scholars as well as Bible scholars agree that this was the beginning of false religions. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. We know the condition of the earth before the flood. Right? What was the condition of the earth before the flood? Was the earth filled with idol worship? Well, it might have been, but that's not what the Bible tells us. What was the earth filled with? Violence. God looked at the heart of men, the imaginations of his heart was wicked continually, and the violence covered the earth, is what the scripture says. So, where did idol worship come from after the flood? There's nobody that learned it from mom and daddy. Where did idol worship come from? Where did false religions come from after the flood? The only answer, the only possible answer is that men originated these things as they were inspired by the devil, influenced by the devil to do so. 
This is one of those great places. Nimrod is going to present a false religion for the people. Now, let's look big picture at this thing as well. Remember the curse that was upon the earth because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden? You remember that uh, there was a curse upon Adam? That curse was upon the ground for Adam's sake. That was his part of the curse because he listened to Eve and partaken of the fruit. There was a curse upon the woman that had to do with labor or work in childbirth and the marriage relationship as far as the man being in charge of the marriage and, and so forth. Then there was a third curse that came upon the serpent. He said of the woman that she would give birth to a child that would bruise his head and he would bruise his heel. But if you look very specifically at the curse, it's not just saying that the woman would provide, produce an offspring that would, that would um, injure the serpent. It says that there's a, an injury that will take place from the seed of the woman upon the seed of the serpent. In other words, it sets up from the beginning, from the, from the Garden of Eden. It sets up from the beginning the battle between Christ, Jesus Christ, and the Antichrist. Nimrod is the type of the Antichrist. And after the flood, first story we have after the flood, after the cleansing of the earth by water, we see how the devil steps in and tries to take control of mankind after God has brought destruction on the first work that he did, the progression of the first work in Noah's day and, and days prior. And what is that? It's a man trying to usurp authority over other mankind, over, over all of the rest of mankind at that point in time. Nimrod says, follow me. I've got a great plan. I'm setting up a world kingdom. He built cities like Nineveh and Cala and some of the the other places, Reason and whoever else it mentions there. We don't know exactly where those are, but we know the general territory or area that they would have to be. And then he says, now I'm going to build my headquarters. My headquarters is going to be in Babel or Babylon. So what does he do? His plan is, let's build a city. Notice verses 3 and 4. The concepts are reversed. Because he says, as it says in verse 4, And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Notice verse 3, it says, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. If you read it the way that the King James says, then the idea would be this. This would be the presentation of Nimrod's vision. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's make bricks. We'll make bricks and bricks and bricks and bricks and we'll make more bricks. And then after we get all that done making bricks, they looked at each other and said, what are we going to do with all these bricks? Oh, I don't know. Want to build a city? That's the way the King James reads. It's got to be just the opposite. The vision is to, to build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven. Now, that's instructive. We're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. But there's something more important than that. And that is once he says, here's the vision, we're going to build this headquarters to set up this world rule, this world kingdom. 
we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower. And by the way, I know how to make bricks. I know how to get this done. Now, there's something else about um, uh, the Hebrew language that we don't pick up on the, in the English translation. And that is, there are certain phrases that are used throughout Scripture that are code words. They're used over and over again or in, in various situations, various applications. I don't mean they're, they're, you know, there's hundreds of them. I just mean the times that they are used, they mean something specific that might not necessarily fit the story proper. For example, why do we need to know about the Tower of Babel? What's important for us to know about the Tower of Babel? Why didn't the Bible just tell us that Noah's three sons gave birth to all these people and they scattered to the four ends, four corners of the world and they spoke different languages? That would have satisfied me. How about you? What do we need to know about the Tower of Babel? What's important enough about this story for the Bible to interject what happened in a very, very few short verses? I mean, if God wanted to save space, he could have just said, and something happened and I I confounded their language. What do we need to know about the Tower of Babel? And and I don't believe any of the Bible is accidental. I believe if it's there, it's there for a reason. So there's got to be something about this story that we need to know about. Well, the first thing you need to know about is the code word for bricks, bricks and stone. The Bible says that all of the altars to God were to be made out of stone. Nothing hewn by man, nothing hammered out. And there's a reason for that, because stones are made by God. God made you as a a living and lively stone in the church. The Bible uses the terminology for stones to speak to people. What does it refer to? It's talking about the unique characteristics of each and every one of us. You have unique characteristics and so do I. You have the ability to create things that I can't create and vice versa. You have the opportunity to express the creative nature and the creative element that God has placed within you through the work of your hands. One of the greatest indicators of that are your fingerprints. Everybody's fingerprints are separate. Everybody's are unique. Now, the problem is science doesn't know what causes fingerprints. Did you know that identical twins have different fingerprints? Well, then fingerprints aren't genetic because the identical twins have the same genetic code. So the same genetic code should produce the same fingerprints if they were genetically originated, but they're not. Here's what medical science doesn't know. If they're not genetically created, what does create them? Nobody's got an answer for that, folks. The only possible answer is God puts his stamp On the end of our fingers, which represents the work of our hands, the stamp of something unique as a reminder that we were created in the image and likeness of him, meaning just as unique, just as separate, just as different as God is from anything else in the universe. What was Nimrod's plan? Nimrod's plan was to make people to forget about their uniqueness, to willingly give up their unique characteristics and become bricks. Become just like everybody else. The bricks 
are not just a, a, a information about how they're going to build the city. It's information about his plan to hunt the people. And this is how he seduces. And this is how every tyrant or would-be tyrant operates. All you have to do is give up just a little of your unique characteristics, the things that make you unique, so that we can all be the same. Now, the problem with that is in Isaiah chapter 9, I believe it is, God complained to Israel about Israel to Isaiah told him to tell the people that because they've started making their altars out of bricks, he was going to judge them. In other words, because their altars represented something man-made, he would judge them. That's what a tyrant wants to do, or a would-be tyrant. He wants to make everything equal, everything just the same. And all you have to do is give up just a little bit of your freedom, just a little bit of your freedom, and we can all be the same. Now, what was the purpose of this tower in the city that they were going to build with bricks? It would reach up into heaven. If his plan is to exalt himself, him meaning Nimrod, what's he want to reach up into heaven for? What's the plan? He can't be stupid enough to think that he can build it big enough to where he can go into heaven. Nobody's that dumb. Well, then what does it represent? It represents the spiritual side of mankind. Now, again, I'm going to relate to some ancient Jewish wisdom here, but it is accurate. It is true. Judaism teaches that man is two parts, spiritual part and material or physical part. Now, they're right. We know that there's a third part, but that third part is the soul. Man is not just spirit and body. Man's spirit, soul, and body. But the soul bridges between the physical and the spiritual and the physical is, a, is an interchangeable word for material. So man has two parts. God made him two parts in this context. Don't worry, I haven't fallen off the wagon. I know man's spirit, soul, and body. But there are two major divisions in man. There's a spiritual side to man. There's a physical side to man. The spiritual side of man aspires to return to the paradise that we lost in the Garden of Eden. The spiritual side of man aspires to everything that is just, everything that is noble, everything that is right. That's why you can have the worst sinners in the world sometimes will do noble and helpful things for others because there is a spiritual side to man. Now, when man loses that spiritual side altogether, you get in a situation like existed just before the flood. For example, it says in uh, verse... Five And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. This means sons of Adam, which the sons of Adam builded. Now, if you remember, when we were talking about the days of Noah prior to the flood, it didn't talk about them as the children or the sons of Adam. It talked about them as meat, just flesh. No spiritual side was left, which is why God exercised judgment in the terms of the flood the way that he did. There was no spiritual side left to man. All he is is meat, just flesh. Just the material, just the physical side of man is in operation. No spiritual side left. But this indicates that the people themselves are not at fault. They're being hunted by a tyrant. Now here it says that uh, 
Oh, where was it? Well, back to verse 3. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The tower is representing their spiritual aspirations. In other words, their desire for the utopia, their desire for the noble side of man, noble works of man to provide for all of mankind. Any and every tyrant will start with one thing. If you'll follow me, we'll put an end to world hunger. We'll recreate the utopia that the earth can provide. We'll make everybody equal. Any of these things sounding similar to what you're hearing today? We'll make everybody the same. There's no reason some should have more than others. We'll make sure that income equality is the the standard for the day. Now, every tyrant has done that. And every generation has had a Nimrod. And if you go back and look at the, the, the ascension of every one of them, you'll find out that there are certain things in common. And those things are the promise for hope and change. Things will be better. Just follow me. The problem is this. No tyrant can deliver. As long as there is sin in the earth, as long as the devil is on the loose, there will never be any, any circumstance where everybody's the same and we're not supposed to be. It's part of the stamp of God upon mankind. The reality is that if a tyrant can keep you in his pocket, so to speak, keep you subservient, keep you hooked into his vision long enough, then by the time you realize he cannot deliver, you've already given up enough of your freedoms to where you're trapped. Now, that's the reason why it says the Lord came down to see what the children of men were doing. There are two names primarily that God uses for himself. And remember, these words are dictated from God directly to Moses. Moses is just writing down what God says. So these are names that God is calling himself. And the two primary names that God calls himself in the first five books of the Bible are Jehovah and Elohim. Elohim is the one that he used when he came down to look at what the the works of man were before the flood. It's the name that's usually used with authority, judgment. It's the name that God uses for himself in Genesis 1.26 where he says, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the earth. Well, that's not judgment in a bad sense. That's judgment meaning authority in the earth. Psalm 8, looking back to that event, says, What is man that thou art made by, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou art what is man that thou visitest him, and the son of man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. King James says angels, it's the word Elohim. The name Elohim. You made him a little lower than yourself in judgment. Well, in what way? Man was given authority on the earth. So the name Elohim is usually used in the first five books of the Bible. There may, be a, there may be one or two exceptions, but there are very few. But when the word Elohim, the name Elohim is used in the first five books of the Bible, it's talking about judgment in some way or another. That's not this word. That's not this name. The other name that is translated Lord into the English most of the time is the name Jehovah. It's the name God gives himself when he's coming down in mercy. 
to show mercy unto mankind. And it's important for you to realize that God had mercy on mankind in this situation because he sees that they're the victims. They're the victims of Nimrod, the tyrant's seduction or hunting of mankind. So God, in his mercy, comes down and delivers mankind from the tyrant. That's what the the scattering of the nations and the confounding of the language is all about. It's God showing his mercy upon mankind for being seduced into what sounded good and what their intentions were good to provide. Now, Nimrod's intentions were not good. Don't get me wrong. He knew exactly what he was doing. But the people that, that bought into his vision, who he appealed to their highest aspirations, the tower that reached into heaven, He's appealing to their highest aspirations. God knows that they've been sucked in. They've been ensnared. Now, here's the reason for that. It talks about Nimrod was a mighty hunter before God. He was a powerful ruler before God. That phrase before God or before the Lord literally means in defiance of. Nimrod was a revolutionary. And here's what his revolt was all about. Here's what his revolution was all about. He's trying to establish a society, a world kingdom, Without God. Now this is 130 years after the flood. There are all kinds of thoughts and theories and teachings about why they tried to build this tower in the manner that they did and the height that they did. It cannot be that God's against tall buildings. Because the tower, from archaeological Estimates and so forth. The tower would have been about 300 or less feet high. Well, that wouldn't even qualify for a big skyscraper in, in Los Angeles, much less somewhere like New York or in some of the major cities of the world. So it can't be the height of the building. Well, if it's not the height of the building, what is it? One um, uh, Kabbalah, one of the, the sects of ancient Judaism, says that the, the children of men were trying to build a tower high enough that they would be able to escape a flood if there was another one. Take that for whatever you think is worth. I don't think it's worth much. But the point is simply this. Nimrod is taking action, hunting the people in defiance of God. Well, if he's in defiance of God, what's he building a name for? Himself. And all he's got to do is get the people hooked in to his vision. This appeal to their highest aspirations. Appeal to the things that they want to believe. And he's got them. And by the time they figure out what's going to happen, that man cannot deliver what he's promised. By the time they figure out hope and change is not hope and change. They're already in too deep. They can't get out. Thank God we've got two four-year terms as a limit. But you tell me. Even in our own day. What do you think President Obama would do with the American elections if he could? Anybody have any doubts that he'd suspend them if it meant him staying in office? Well, what about all the things he promised? Remember, in his, the night that he won the election, he said that the next day the seas would rise. That there would be peace on the earth. It's pretty good. That sounds wonderful. And some people bought in. 
Well, the seas didn't rise. I want you to understand something, folks. President Obama could not stop climate change. Now, if he can't stop it, who in the world can? All this idea about legislation is ridiculous. President Obama couldn't stop the seas. He couldn't make them rise. I hope you understand that I'm being facetious about a lot of this stuff. But it's the same principle. Same exact principle. Hitler promised the same things. Put an end to poverty. Income equality. By the time people figured out what was really going on, they were in too deep. He had dragged them into world wars. It was kill or be killed at that point. Well, was everybody in World War II Germany on Hitler's side and wanting the things that he wanted and wanted to kill the Jews and so forth? Certainly not. But they were taken in by promises that that were never intended to be fulfilled. That's what Nimrod is doing, folks. He's trying to build a society without God. Well, everybody's going to need something to worship. If they're not going to worship God, what are they going to worship? Look in in the nations of every tyrant that you can find, and you'll find statues built to the individual. Big statues, big posters that communicate the leader and the leader's vision. Because remember, the whole point of Nimrod is for you to get down so that he can be exalted. So he tries to make everybody bricks. Now, what's going to hold these bricks together? Notice it says in verse uh, 3, Go to, let us make brick, and they burn them, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, instead of stone in other words, and slime they had for mortar. Now, these two words in the, in the Hebrew are almost identical, slime and mortar. If, you, if, if somebody was able to say them, they would sound a little different. But they're almost identical. In other words, it's saying they had to have something to replace or stand in the place of mortar, which is what holds bricks together. Well, what is it? And remember, this is uh, a type and a shadow for us to see and for us to understand. What is it that's going to hold together the bricks to fulfill the vision that Nimrod the tyrant has? The word for slime, the meaning of slime, that which holds them together is material things. It's talking not about the spiritual side. He's appealed to that through aspirations, but it's the material side. You'll be better off. The economy will get better if you'll just do what I tell you to do. Everybody, there'll be a chicken in every pot. Nobody will be without. Everybody will have plenty. That's what Nimrod did. And that's what every tyrant after him has done too. It's exactly the same. So God said, notice in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men, sons of Adam, had builded. This is another phrase, the Lord came down. It indicates that God is willing to come down to man's level. Tyrants won't. Tyrants will never stoop down to where man is, and they see themselves as much higher than the bricks that have given up their freedoms. This story is about the Tower of Babel, but it could just as easily be titled Freedom or Tyranny. 
Because that's what the story of the Tower of Babel is all about. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they all have one language, literally one lip. And this they now begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go, down, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now, a couple of things, and we'll close with this. A couple of things about this is that I want you to understand the miracle that took place in the magnitude of the miracle. We think of it in kind of generic terms. Well, God just made it where the people couldn't understand each other. He didn't make it so that nobody could understand anybody else. He made it so that the 70 tribes with their individual dialects could only understand the people of their own tribes. Now think of the magnitude of that miracle. People were once speaking different dialects of one major language. The Jews, and there's some evidence to support it, indicate that God's original language that he spoke to Adam and the patriarchs with was Hebrew. So there's some pretty good evidence, not conclusive, not definite, but pretty good evidence, that the first language, the language of the day, the language that was carried on after Noah and the flood, was the Hebrew language. But people were speaking different dialects of it. Now, all of a sudden, nobody outside of the tribe that are listed, the tribes, the individuals of the 70 tribes that are listed in the genealogy of chapter 10 can understand anybody outside of their own tribe. But they can understand each other within their tribes. Seventy nations, seventy languages or seventy tongues. Now remember the Bible talks about everything being types and shadows. The Old Testament is a type. And everything that happened in the Old Testament is a type of what happened for the New Testament. Oh, by the way, I, I did leave something out. Let me say this real quick. Did you notice where it said the people journeyed from the east? Where they put themselves in a position for Nimrod to seduce them or hunt them down? You know what I mean by that term, hunt them down? I mean that in a figurative manner. To seduce them into his agenda. From the east in the Hebrew always means away from the sun, away from the light. And so from the east does not just mean they came from one direction. It means they traveled away from wisdom. Even in cartoons, if somebody comes to the light or comes to an understanding or has a great idea, it's drawn with a light bulb coming on over their head. Well, in the Bible, here's another one of those code words or code phrases. From the east means departing from wisdom, departing from the light. The light and the truth cannot be allowed under a tyrant. And so they departed from the truth to accept his position or his revolution to create a society apart or away from God. Now, as I said, uh, let me continue the thought that I was going to finish up with, and that is the magnitude of the miracle. It made many nations out of one language. The fulfillment of this type 
is the day of Pentecost. Because God, on the day of Pentecost, provides for the church for many, language, uh, for, for many nations that were gathered in Jerusalem and are scattered all over the earth, one language to communicate directly with him, to communicate directly with God. Now remember what the purpose of speaking with tongues is, that we can communicate with God to bypass our mind and our flesh. Remember what, what God said about the people and why he had to confound their language? Let me read it to you again. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. That's a picture of the church today. Oh, that the church would accept what's available. But you can see why the devil fights it so much. Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, spiritual language, heavenly language for our time. And this they now this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. That's a picture of the church accepting the spiritual language of tongues and using it. Nothing's impossible for the church. Nothing is impossible for the church. Now one final thought, and that is the next thing that the Bible tells us is Genesis chapter twelve, where it tells us the story of Abraham. Here's the reason why the story of the Tower of Babel is in the Scripture. Because it shows us a contrast between Nimrod, who is a hunter of men, trying to make everybody the same and subservient to his vision and his purpose and his plan, as opposed to Abraham, who's operating as a unique individual in freedom, following the leading of the Lord and building a society, building a civilization a tribe of people that's greater than anything that Nimrod could have imagined to have over centuries through obedience to God and his word that's the contrast and the reason why Genesis 11 is right connected directly with Genesis 12 that's the reason why the story of the tower of Babel is connected to the story of Abraham because it shows on one hand here's what a tyrant does trying to build a society without God and here's what it results in. It results in the uh, tyrannical rule and captivity of the people. But here's what it looks like when you follow God as a free will individual. The Bible talks about us as Gentiles being children of Abraham. Our one language for all nations is a spiritual language. Think about what the Bible says on the day of Pentecost. It says that people from all parts of the world heard the 120 speak in their own languages. So here was a miracle at the Tower of Babel that God did where people that, that knew their own languages now can't communicate with anybody other than their own tribe. On the day of Pentecost, here are people from various countries and lands that are hearing languages that they don't understand, but they hear it as if it was their own language. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom that the Bible gives us. Thank you, Father, that we can see the devil's devices and his plans. We see, Father, from the earliest of days 
that the devil makes promises that he never intends to keep. The devil influences his servants to make promises without any intentions of keeping them. We see, Father, that governments, worldly governments, which were established by you and can be good, but they're held under the influence of the enemy, make promises that they never intend to keep. And there are always unintended consequences for following the promises of the evil one. Always unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences are the things that destroy mankind. Men and women, boys and girls. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the, of the example of Abraham who simply obeyed your word and followed your voice into blessings. Blessings that were greater than anything that he imagined. Thank you that it's the same with us today. Obedience brings greater blessings than we planned. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you for the Holy Ghost who gives us one language for many nations. That we might fulfill your plan and purpose. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Well, did you get anything out of that tonight? Well, good. If you didn't, listen again. Maybe you'll get something the second time. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Sunday.